Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Iris and to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. It's Monday, January 9th, and I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's take a look at today's weather forecast from KCRG in Cedar Rapids. Patchy fog early, highs around 40 this afternoon. Plan on a pretty quiet start to the week overall. A few patches of fog may occur early this morning, though should lift quickly if they occur at all. A gentle south breeze and a fair amount of sunshine should push highs into the mid-30s north to lower 40s south this afternoon. We generally have two systems to watch this week, with the first coming tomorrow night into Wednesday morning. Precipitation appears to be very light with this one. However, some patchy drizzle can't be entirely ruled out Wednesday morning and will be something worth watching. A second system may brush the area with a little snow on Thursday. Otherwise, the temperatures will remain in the 30s throughout the week, with lows mainly in the teens and 20s. Sunrise this morning was at 7.34 a.m. and sets this evening at 4.53 p.m. Let's look at the stories on the front page today. They include Democrats Searching for Fresh Leadership, Retiring CFCT Manager Gets Roasted, It's Fresh and It's Family, and let's begin reading the top story on the page. 2023 Legislature Opens Today, a profile of this year's Iowa General Assembly. Dateline Des Moines. The diversity among Iowa state lawmakers once again has risen, but still lags well behind the state's population. When the 2023 session of Iowa Legislature convenes today and the 90th Iowa General Assembly begins its work, there will be 12 minority lawmakers representing Iowans. That's a 50% increase from the eight minority lawmakers who started the two-year General Assembly in 2021, and triple the four who went to work in 2019. And yet, while the number of minority state lawmakers steadily has increased after each of the past two elections, the figure still represents only 8% of the legislature. Meanwhile, Twice that, roughly 16%, of Iowa residents identify as minorities, according to U.S. Census data. The figures in this article are based on available demographic information for the 150 members of the legislature, gathered from multiple sources, including legislative and caucus staff, news reports, election candidate information, and the legislators themselves. Of those 12 minority legislators, 11 will serve in the Iowa House, 8 Democrats and 3 Republicans. There is only one minority legislator in the Iowa Senate, freshman Democratic Senator Isaiah Knox of Des Moines. The group includes the first-ever Arab-American to serve in the Iowa legislature, Democratic-Republican Sammy Sheets of Cedar Rapids, GOP Minorities. Republicans had another successful election in 2022 and thus enter the 90th General Assembly with strong majorities. In the Senate, there are 34 Republicans and 16 Democrats. And in the House, there are 64 Republicans and 36 Democrats. That means, in total, the 150-member Iowa legislature is almost two-thirds Republican. Looking at ages and generations, step-aside boomers 
Generation X is taking over, at least in the Senate. Members of Generation X, those born between 1965 and 1980, according to Pew Research Center, make up a majority of lawmakers in one chamber of the legislature. In fact, half of the Iowa Senate, 25 members, is Gen X. That outnumbers the 19 baby boomers in the Senate. But boomers are still well represented in the House, where they hold a commanding 45 to 30 advantage over the Gen Xers. There's a total of 20 millennials born between 1981 and 1996 in the Iowa legislature, 16 in the House and 4 in the Senate. There are two members of Generation Z born after 1996, both of the youngsters, Carter Nordman, a Republican from Panora, and Adam Zebner, a Democrat from Iowa City, are in the House. At 23, Zabner is the youngest member of the 90th General Assembly, a Latino. He is also one of the dozen minority legislators. The oldest member of the legislature is 82-year-old Senator Julian Garrett, a Republican from Indianola. The average age of a current Iowa state lawmaker is 55. Gender imbalance. The legislature made no gains in gender balance in the last election. The second consecutive two-year General Assembly starts with women comprising just 29% of all state lawmakers. Women make up 49.8% of Iowa's population. And again, Democrats remain far more gender-balanced, nearly half at 46% of Democratic legislatures are women, while just one in five Republican legislators is a woman. Senate Democrats are an exact 50-50 split of eight men and eight women. House Democrats had featured a majority of women in the past two general assemblies, but this time around have more men than women, 20 to 16. However, the House Democrats' leadership team, which is elected by their peers, is all women. Education and occupation. Farmers, business professionals and owners, and educators account for the majority of Iowa legislators' day jobs. While some legislators listed more than one occupation, the legislature has at least 24 business professionals and 16 business owners, 22 farmers, and 13 educators. More than 80% of Iowa lawmakers have at least a four-year college degree. And under the title, Odds and Ends, we have these. Naturally, two-thirds of Iowa state lawmakers were born in Iowa. But where did the transplants come from? Illinois, former Governor Terry Branstad's favorite punching bag, produced the most foreign-born legislators in the 90th General Assembly. Nine, Iowa legislators have an average of 2.3 children. There are at least 38 grandparents in the legislature, with new Republican Cindy Golding a Republican from Cedar Rapids, has the biggest family with 21 grandchildren. The legislators with the most terms served in their respective chambers are Brad Zahn, a Republican from Urbandale, who is serving his fifth four-year term in the Senate, and Representative Dave Jacoby, a Democrat from Coralville, who is serving his 11th two-year term in the House.
Next, we have a story about a new restaurant, Tacos California, opens in Cedar Falls with authentic Mexican street food, and tacos is spelled with a Z. The story was filed by Andy Milone. Dateline Cedar Falls. Maribel Islas and family are bringing authentic Mexican street food to Cedar Falls. She's following a household tradition by opening an eatery of her own, Tacos California, at 200 West 1st Street, in the space formerly occupied by David's Tap House and Dumpling. Her family began running the Los Reyes food truck in Waterloo at Six Corners, the intersection of West 4th Street and Kimball, Campbell and Williston Avenues, in 2017. Her mother, Maria Islas, and brother, Antonio Islas, initially sold burritos at the Tyson Food Facility while working there. Later, they ran the food truck with the help of Maribel and her children. They then opened up a restaurant called Taqueria Los Reyes on Franklin Street in Waterloo. Maribel Islas followed in her family members' footsteps by running a Tacos California food truck in the same spot they did back in 2020. Now, though, she has taken the step of opening a brick-and-mortar space that began offering similar cuisine right before the start of 2023. Quote, People we know will like the street food and tacos with fresh homemade corn tortillas, she said. There's not a lot of places like this, and it's different from a typical Mexican restaurant. We've gotten a lot of good feedback. Any negative feedback, I always tell people, we'll learn from it, unquote. Quote, we love food, but decided to do our own thing, she added in explaining why they decided not to team up with her brother and mother. We'd be working close with family and didn't want to mess up what we have as a family because family is a very important thing, unquote. Islas of Evansdale gave a lot of credit to her mother for teaching her family how to make delicious, authentic Mexican food. She taught us how to make the real stuff, unquote. It's not packaged. It's fresh rice, fresh salsa, and we're cutting everything fresh, ranging from the onions to the limes, radishes, lettuce, and everything in between. It's homemade. Meats are cut fresh, too. The family offers carne asada al pastor, chicken and chorizo for the tacos, as well as other meats like cheek and tongue. While admittedly not authentic, they have given in a bit and offer ground beef, too. Their roots are in Salinas, California, a central coast town close to San Francisco, where taco vendors dot the streets. Their mother immigrated there from Brez, a town in the state of Zacatecas, about 50 years ago. They followed Islas's sister, Joanna, who moved to Iowa because of her husband. Islas has been living in the Cedar Valley the last 13 years. The most popular item on the menu has been the Berea taco. She encourages people to try it, but recognizes it's different and not for everybody. Quote, it's got a strong beef flavor and comes with a broth and spices, she said. Islas has a behind-the-scenes role, while daughters Joanna and Vanessa Romero and brother Jose Islas have taken on management and kitchen responsibilities. Quote, if it weren't for them, I wouldn't be here, she said, about why she finally was able to decide, quote, I'm going to do this 
and open up the physical location. Quote, our mother had a vision and executed it, said Jose Islas. Just look at the decorations. Her ideas were something fresh, new, and colorful. Quote, I wanted to help make her dream come true, said Joanna Romero, who is depicted as a caricature in the official logo. Quote, she's always wanted to own her own restaurant, Romero noted. She's enjoyed seeing her mother smile at the days since opening. The facility is decorated like the bright colors and graffiti seen in Salinas, California. One of the portraits behind the bar area, they are still working on obtaining a liquor license, features sunglasses with the reflections of the low-rider vehicles commonly driven in the city streets. Also among the decor are dolls with a Dia de los Muritos theme, the Day of the Dead celebration. It brings that feeling of a whole culture of Chiquinos, not from United States or Mexico, but sort of a hybrid American of Mexico origin, unquote. Chicanos are not from Chicago, she quipped, as she'll sometimes hear in the Midwest. Tacos, California is open 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. Tuesday to Thursday and 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. Friday and Saturday. More about the restaurant, as well as the complete menu, can be found online at its Facebook page. In addition to tacos, it offers burritos, quesadillas, ramen noodles, and other sides. Quote, that's the latest we're open, because I don't want to overwork my staff. They're already here 12 hours for the day, she said. It's hard work. I'm here at 6 a.m., and I'm leaving at 9 p.m. It's tough, but I love what I'm doing, she added. In the future, she plans to offer alcoholic beverages and open an elevated private party area in the facility. As with many businesses, the opening days have been hectic, but it's seen early success even without an official sign immediately put out front. Quote, it's not been easy. We've been short-staffed, said Isla. It's been really crazy in the kitchen, but people have been understanding and supportive, unquote. The restaurant is seeking to add more cooks. It has a sit-down area feeding about 75 people, but orders are placed at the counter and no waiters have been hired. Next, we have a story written by Tom Barton of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. Iowa Democrats look for a leader and renewed hopes. Iowa Democrats face a rocky road ahead as the party looks to rebuild after another election cycle that saw Republicans expand their control over the state lawmaking process to levels not seen in Iowa since the 1950s. Iowa Republicans now occupy all six seats in the state's congressional delegation. The governor's office, all statewide offices save for one, and gained historically large majorities in the legislature. On top of that, National Democrats are poised to vote early next month on a new calendar for its presidential nominating process that could strip Iowa Democrats of the first-in-the-nation caucus status they held for half a century in favor of more diverse battleground states. Who will be at the helm helping guide the Iowa Democratic Party as it charts a new path, remains an open question. Central committee members will vote January 28th to elect a new leader after Iowa Democratic Party Chair Ross Wilburn announced last month he will not seek another term 
as leader of the party. So far, two have officially announced their candidacy for chair of the Iowa Democratic Party, while others are considering it. Brittany Rowland, who served as campaign manager for State Senator Sarah Trump Garriott, a Democrat from West Des Moines, and Burlington Veterans Advocate Bob Krause, a former state legislature, have announced they are running for chair of the state party. Iowa Democratic Party Vice Chair June Owens and Democratic former Iowa State Senator Rita Hart of Clinton County say they're considering a run also. Quote, I'm just in a position where I'm hoping we can all come together and having some conversation about what's best for Iowa Democratic Party going forward. And we'll see what happens, Hart said. Quote, we have a lot of talking to do. There's definitely some challenges we need to address, and I'm happy to be part of that conversation, unquote. Owens was elected in 2019 as the first black woman to serve as vice chair of the Iowa Democratic Party, as well as the first black woman to serve as a Democratic National Committee member from the state. She also helped lead the party's efforts to recruit and train candidates and volunteers across the state, and has worked over the years to increase voter registration and voter outreach. Quote, we definitely need to have a 99-county strategy, Owen said. Organizing year-round is of the utmost important, and engaging volunteers at all levels to help strengthen county parties and candidates to win, and developing a strong, robust, small donor program so that we can definitely engage volunteers, whether small donors to big donors, to support the party so we can be organized to win, and recruiting candidates to run up and down the ballot, and that we are leaving no race uncontested, unquote. Some have suggested C.J. Peterson, chair of the Iowa Democratic Party's Stonewall Caucus, and the former communications director for U.S. Senate candidate Mike Franken, should be considered. In a January 3rd op-ed in the Carroll Times-Herald, former newspaper owner and columnist Douglas Burns said Peterson, a leader on LGBTQ issues, quote, would bring the right and relevant portfolio of professional, political, and perhaps more important, life experiences to the job, unquote. Peterson, who is gay and lives in Templeton in rural western Iowa with his husband Luke, said he does not intend to run for chair, but did not completely rule out the possibility. Quote, I'm flattered by what he wrote, but I'm not there yet in terms of putting my hat in the ring, he said. House Minority Leader Jennifer Conforst, the Democrat from Windsor Heights, told reporters during a news conference Friday she's looking for, quote, somebody who is able to do the fundraising and who's able to work with us collaboratively on getting across the state and talking with Iowans about who Democrats in Iowa are and what we stand for. Quote, the good news is we don't have to change who we are to get Iowans to vote with us because Iowans are already with us, she said of House Democrats' policy agenda of lowering costs for Iowans investing in public schools, protecting reproductive freedom, and legalizing marijuana for recreational use. Iowa Senator Minority Leader Zach Walls, a Democrat from Coralville, 
echoed Conforst, and thanked Wilburn for his service, calling him a mentor. Walls said the next chair needs to be someone with experience organizing at the county and local levels, and who's really comfortable in rural Iowa, unquote. Quote, we know that a big part of the future for the Democratic Party in Iowa has to be trimming some of these margins in rural Iowa back down to where they used to be, Walls said. Iowa Republicans at the top of the ballot won in all but a handful of counties on Election Day, while support for Democrats continues to be concentrated mostly in urban areas. And even some of the larger counties in the eastern part of the state, like Scott and Dubuque, also look to be gaining GOP support. It's a symptom Democratic candidates and party operatives say is tied to messaging, poor voter turnout, and lacking party infrastructure. Next, we have a story filed by Melody Parker titled, Retiring Cedar Falls Community Theater Manager Gets Roasted. Friends will send off John Luzak Saturday in a flurry of funny. Dateline Cedar Falls. John Luzak is on the hot seat. On Saturday, Luzak will be subjected to a comedy roast as friends, family, and well-wishers gather to deliver jokes and share funny stories and comments about him as he officially enters retirement. The event is at 7 p.m. at the Oster Regent Theater, 103 Main Street. General admission tickets are $10. Luzak, who has retired as general manager for the Oster Regent and Cedar Falls Community Theater, said he expects the roasting, quote, will be good old-fashioned family-friendly fun. I expect there will be lots of laughs and all at my expense, but it's a good way, a fun way, to go out, unquote. Luzak announced his retirement in July, but has remained through January as the theater transitioned to its new executive director, Greg Holt. CFCT veteran performer Kristen Tig Torres will act as the MC Roastmaster, introducing participants and leading the roast. Seated on the dais, poking fun at Luzak, will be his friends and colleagues, Gary Baumgartner, Brad Braley, Jim Koloff, Blake Conover, Gary Kroger, Pat Lyons, Bob Westerman, and Steve Kerrigan. Kerrigan will be in New York, so his comments will be read by Tig Torres. Holt will wander the first two rows on the theater's main floor with a wireless, handheld mic on the prowl for audience members who want to pick on Luzak, too. Holt has carte blanche on comments. It promises to be a fine and funny farewell, Luzak said, but he has a few surprises up his sleeve for the roasters. Quote, and I'll get the last word, he added. Luzak has been general manager since April 1998. He studied acting with Lee Strasberg and graduated with a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree from Tisch School of the Arts at New York University. A veteran actor, he also managed the Off-Broadway Intermedia Theater, where shows like Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat started prior to Broadway and played softball in the Broadway Show League for the Improv. Tickets are on sale Monday through Friday from 1 to 4 p.m. and one hour before the show. Call 319-277-5283 for information to reserve or purchase tickets. 
There is an optional reception with the roasters Tig Torres, Holt, and Luzak one hour prior to the event in the Deary reception room on the third floor of the theater. The Luzach Lounge will start at 6 p.m. for a $20 contribution. Funds raised at the roast will be donated to CFCT for theater scholarships in Luzach's name. The event will be recorded by Cedar Falls Cable TV for broadcast at a later date. Now we have a regular Monday feature by the Courier titled Northeast Iowa Area Escapades. Here are just a few of the events and goings-on worth checking out in the Northeast Iowa area. On Friday, January 13th, UNI swims and dives into 2023. The University of Northern Iowa Swimming and Dive Team will compete against Illinois State on Friday. The event begins at 5 p.m. at Glen F. Harry Pool at UNI's Wellness and Recreation Center on campus. Next, on Friday and Saturday and Sunday, January 13th through the 15th, the Pinballs opens 2023 BHCT season. The Blackhawk Children's Theater production of The Pinballs, based on the award-winning book by Betsy Byers and adapted for the stage by Aaron Harris, opens for three performances this weekend. Directed by Sam Cotta, performances are at 7 p.m. Friday and 2 p.m. Saturday and Sunday in the McElroy Theater, a black box theater at the Walker Building, 224 Commercial Street. Seating is limited. Tickets are $15 for adults, $10 for children. Other performances are at 7 p.m. January 20th. Quote, Pay What You Can Night and 2 p.m. Saturday 21st. It's the story of three kids in foster care who feel like they're just pinballs bounced from bumper to bumper or home to home. Carrie, Harvey, and Thomas J. become friends and all three begin to see that they can take control of their own lives. Tickets are available online at the box office in the Waterloo Center for the Arts or by calling area code 319-291-4494. Next, on Saturday, January 14th, time to jam with homegrown talent. The next homegrown jam will take place from 1.45 p.m. to 4.45 p.m. Saturday at Cedar Falls Community Center, 524 Main Street. Homegrown Jam is a group of musicians who play the second Saturday of each month at the community theater. Musicians are invited to bring their instruments and songs they'd like to perform with others jamming alongside you. A light lunch is served. The jam and refreshments are free, although donations are encouraged to help cover building rental and food costs. Next, we have a story that comes from the Sioux City Journal and was written by Jared McNett, titled, Sioux City Podcast Offers Glimpse of Firefighters' Lives, Dateline Sioux City. In the title of the new Sioux City-based podcast, Before the Tones Drop, there's the mission statement of the fire rescue workers behind it. Quote, watching EMS-based shows, people in the fire department and the EMS and see the action side of things, but what they don't necessarily see is what happened in the firehouse, Sioux City Fire Lieutenant Phil Marchant told the Sioux City Journal. 
so we're bringing you into the world before those alert tones come in, unquote. Now in its third episode, the Before the Tones podcast was forged during a recruitment effort. Marchand and his fellow podcasters, Benjamin Moorhead and Devin Shipper, were leading in their capacity as members of their department's Human Resources Committee. Quote, we did a Facebook Live Q&A, Marchand said, trying to get some information out so people applying knew what they were getting into. Once they were able to get Sioux City Fire Chief Tom Everett to sign off on it and find a producer, Ryan Baker, the trio recorded their first episode and released it on October 26, 2022, on a number of different podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. The first episode, aptly titled The Pilot, begins with some blues rock and metallic music before Moorhead sets the stakes, introduces his co-hosts, and gets a few light-hearted barbs about some of the other rescue workers on the staff. Marchand talks about how he traveled hundreds of miles from northern Minnesota to take the job in Sioux City, and Shipper explains how firefighting is in his family. His dad, Dave Shipper, is the fire chief in Lamar's, as was Devon's grandfather, Wayne Shipper. Quote, I didn't really have an option to do anything else, he jokes. Like a lot of debut podcasts, a few seams show. The three occasionally interrupt each other, and there's some talking away from the microphones and transitions that don't fully flow. Quote, I kind of relate it to the first time in high school I played in a band. When you look back on it, you had no idea what you were doing, and that's what this first episode was like, Martin said. Moorhead added, quote, We found a lot of improvements right away, and even in our second episode, we feel like we made a lot of progress, unquote. As someone who recently got five years under his belt, Moorhead said he has always been compelled to hang out with the older guys and hear the tales they have to tell. Quote, I love hanging out in the kitchen table with some of the crews and hearing stories from the past and making memories, he said. We learn from who's ahead of us, unquote. That feeling is one everyone involved with the Before the Tones Drop podcast is trying to capture on each episode. They want folks in the broader community to come to a better understanding of the bonds that can be forged when co-workers have to put their lives on the line for one another and are also stuck together for long stretches of time. In other words, quote, give a perspective of what it's like to be a first responder in Sioux City, Moorhead said. And now, listeners, we want to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Monday, January 9th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, since today's courier has no obituaries posted, we'll continue now to the opinion section. Our first editorial comes from the New York Times. It's titled, Leopards Eat Kevin McCarthy's Face, and written by Michelle Goldberg. As we approach the anniversary of the January 6th attack, it's been grimly amusing to see that the party of insurrection can't even manage the orderly transfer of power to itself. Rarely does karma play out so neatly. Kevin McCarthy nurtured the spirit of reactionary nihilism in the Republican Party. 
first by trying to harness the energy of the Tea Party for his own ambition, and then by his near-total capitulation to Donald Trump. Now the chaotic forces he abetted have, at least for the moment, derailed his goal of becoming House Speaker, subjecting him to multiple public humiliations at what was supposed to be his moment of triumph. It is still possible that McCarthy will manage to eke this thing out by making even more concessions to the growing block of Republicans who oppose him. It is not possible, however, that he'll emerge in any real sense as a leader, unable to corral his caucus for what is usually an easy vote. There is no chance McCarthy would be able to get them on board for hard ones, like keeping the government open or raising the debt ceiling to avoid plunging the country into default. His best-case scenario is that he'd be a fragile figurehead, a hostage to the hard right, and constantly in danger of defenestration, and even that scenario looks increasingly out of reach. McCarthy's approach to the far right has always been one of indulgence. Despite his own apparent lack of ideological conviction, he recruited many of the Tea Party candidates elected to the House in 2010. As Robert Draper, a longtime chronicler of the Republican Party, wrote in 2011, they represented McCarthy's more entrepreneurial approach to politics. Seize upon a trend, in this case government phobia, put all your money on it, and then work hard to make the trend last, unquote. McCarthy persisted in this approach as the Tea Party evolved into Trumpism, earning Trump's patronizing subroquet, Mike Kevin. Marginalizing Trump after January 6th would have been politically risky for McCarthy, no doubt. But by flying to Mar-a-Lago to abase himself before Trump just weeks after the attack on the Capitol, signaling to all that Trump remained the leader of the Republican Party, McCarthy helped seal his own fate. Trump is a major reason the Republican House margin is as small as it is. Voters rejected many of Trump's hand-picked candidates, as well as the party's broader election denialism. And though Trump himself has endorsed McCarthy, many of his disciples are hostile to anyone associated with the Republican establishment. As the Times reported, of the 20 lawmakers who, as of this writing, have voted against McCarthy, 17 were endorsed by Trump in 2022. Five of them are freshmen. These are people who are part of Trump's remaking of the Republican Party. Arizona's Ellie Crane, for example, is a former contestant on the business reality show Shark Tank, where he pitched bottle openers made of dummy 50 caliber bullets. Quote, shoot open some bottles in the manliest way possible, unquote, says an ad for the product. Florida's Anna Paulina Luna, an ally of Trump diehard Matt Getz, is a veteran and former swimsuit model who built a career as a conservative rabble-rouser, most recently running Hispanic outreach for the right-wing outfit Turning Point USA. These people seem to be crafting brands as much as political careers, meaning they benefit from high drama and have little need to work their way through Republican institutions. The movement these characters are part of, one McCarthy hoped would carry him to power, isn't simply ideological. It's also a set of defiant, paranoid, anti-system attitudes, and a version of politics that prioritizes showboating over legislating. 
That's why McCarthy has found himself unable to negotiate with the holdouts. There are no real policy stakes, no concessions he can make on issues. The anti-McCarthy faction's demands are largely about power and visibility, and whenever he meets these demands, they move the goalposts. McCarthy evidently believed that by courting Georgia's Marjorie Taylor Greene, an avatar of hyper-performance politics, he could co-opt her wing of the party. He was set to offer her valuable committee assignments and, according to Draper, had even offered to create a new leadership position for her. But her elevation would be valuable to other Trumpists only if there were concrete things they hoped to accomplish together. Putting Green on the Oversight Committee does nothing to help those who aspire to her notoriety. They don't want publicity. They want airtime. One of the most amazing aspects of the House Republican crack-up has been watching Green's angry exasperation as her shot at real power is imperiled by attention-seeking hardliners. Quote, They're proving to the country that they're just destructionists, she said on Sunday. It was the embodiment of the Twitter meme. Quote, I never thought leopards would eat my face, sobs a woman who voted for the leopards-eating-people's-faces party. By bowing first to Trump and then to Green, all McCarthy has done is show other Republicans how much there is to gain from pushing him around. His downfall isn't surprising. Almost no one who has sold his or her soul to Trump has come out ahead. The jury is still out on the Republican conference chair, Elise Stefanik. The reason these deals with the devil always go bad, I suspect, isn't metaphysical. It's simply that Trump sycophants are ultimately undermined by their weak and flabby character. McCarthy's Republican opponents are right in surmising that he believes in nothing and will yield under pressure. The evidence is his inability to stand up to them. His mistake was convincing himself that a party obsessed with dominance would reward submission. Next, we have an opinion piece written by Tish Harrison Warren titled, This Year, Try Organizing Your Life Like a Monk. Last week, when we looked at suggested resolutions from thinkers and writers, I mentioned that I often feel ambivalent about the beginning of the year thrust toward disciplines, goals, and habits. I tend more toward variety and chaos rather than order and routine. But over the last decade, I've found a strange source of inspiration. The lives of monks and nuns have taught me a non-Catholic mother who sleeps late whenever possible and binges Netflix how to better live. Because of their example, I've adopted a rule of life. A rule of life is an overarching plan governing your daily practices, habits, and routines. It's not a resolution, but rather a comprehensive way to take stock of how you spend your time so that you be the person you want to be. The most famous rule of life is the Rule of St. Benedict, written in the 6th century, which organizes the life of Benedictine monks, specifying everything from what they should wear to when they should pray. My copy of the Rule of St. Benedict clocks in at just under 100 pages. My personal rule of life, by contrast, is three pages long and ever-evolving. While Benedict sets out eight times of daily prayer, my rule of life dictates far fewer. Benedict encourages stability by requiring monks to stay with the same community and not relocate at will. 
I seek to impose stability through my rule of limiting travel to work to no more than four times a year. He lays out long hours of daily silence. I have three lovely but loud kids, so I include comparatively shorter times of silence in my rule. His rule prohibits monks from private ownership and wealth. Mine lays out goals for giving, generosity, and budgeting. His rule recommends times of fasting. My rule dictates when I put away devices and limits my screen time. John Mark Comer is a founding pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon. He now runs a nonprofit and hosts the, quote, Rule of Life podcast. As many people think about their goals for the year ahead, I asked John Mark if he'd speak with me about the concept of a rule of life. This interview has been edited and condensed. What is a rule of life? What does that language come from? A rule of life is ancient Christian language for a schedule and a set of practices and relational rhythms that organize your life around what you most deeply value. It is an English translation of a Latin phrase. The original word was regula, which is where we get words like regular or ruler, because it literally meant a straight piece of wood. A lot of linguists argue that it was the word used for the trellis in the vineyard. If you can imagine a winery in the first, second, or third century, the regula was the trellis underneath the vine. Early Christians picked up this language because in one of Jesus' most famous teachings in John 15, he says, quote, Abide in the vine, and you will bear much fruit. His disciples are like the branches, and God is like the vine. By living in God, we bear what he called fruit, which is this metaphor for what is later qualified in the New Testament as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Early Christians claimed that if we're going to apprentice under Jesus and bear the maximum amount of fruit, then we have to have some kind of life trellis, some kind of support to structure our lives around what is most deeply important to us. If you look at moments in church history when the rule of life was most central to the church, they were moments of war or famine or disease or the breakdown of the Roman Empire, or the corruption of the institutional church. We're living in a very similar moment to that now as Western culture is fracturing at the seams with spikes in anxiety, depression, and mental illness, loneliness, and alienation, the breakdown of the family, and systemic racism. So I think the need of the hour for Christians and thoughtful people who really want to live well is to adopt a rule of life. This is a little bit personal, but can you give some brass tacks examples of what are some things in your rule of life? At a personal level, every morning I get up at such a time that I can spend an hour in prayer, followed by an hour of reading before I let myself look at my phone. At a more family level, we practice Sabbath together. The whole 24-hour period, we put all of our phones away. We gather around the table with close friends. We celebrate a huge meal. We practice gratitude, rest. We sleep, we play. And that is a major part of our rule of life that we kind of anchor our weekly rhythm as a family around. Most people have heard of a rule of life, 
often associated with monks and nuns. The monastic tradition has preserved something down through the centuries that was originally for all Christians. What myself and many others are arguing is that we need to take what they have preserved and figure out how to contextualize and apply it for those of us who aren't monks and nuns. Do you think non-religious people or people who are not Christians should have a rule of life? Well, I would say that all people have a rule of life. You likely have a morning routine. You have a way that you spend your free time. You probably have a job. Hopefully, you have a budget. For a lot of people, the problem in their life is not that they don't have a rule of life. It's that they do. The problem is not that it's not working. It's that it is working, but it's poorly designed. So how does one begin? How do you design a rule of life? What should be included? Well, step one is to clarify in your mind and heart a vision of the kind of person you want to be and the kind of life you want to live, what you most deeply value. Then work backward and very slowly. Don't try to go hardcore. The next step is a kind of habit audit. You can read a book like Tiny Habits by B.J. Fogg. Then begin to see if you can connect the dots between all of these habits and relationships and who they are forming you into. What about folks like me who struggle with discipline and habit? A couple of pieces of advice would be to start really, really, really small. Don't start with massive steps. If it's, I'm going to work out an hour a day, start with, I'm going to do 10 push-ups a day. Second is, start with joyful things that you love and want to do. So maybe rather than starting with meditation for 30 minutes in the morning, start every morning by drinking a cup of tea before you do anything else. Then we do have a habit and we feel good. It increases the likelihood of us doing it again on a regular basis. Then the more regular it becomes, the more it's wired into our nervous system and we just start to do it automatically. The great challenge of a rule of life is also the great joy. The challenge is you can't live by a rule of life and live by the hurried pace of modern American person, most of whom are radically overbusy, distracted, overcommitted, underslept, and exhausted all the time. A rule of life will force you to face your mortality, your limitations, your emotional limitations, and it will force you to say no. The joy is that on the other side of it is a life where you are integrated. You are living at a pace that you can walk until you die and still be deeply joyful and year over year become more loving and kind and peaceful. But there is no way to do that without a willingness to live unlike most people around you are living. And now, let's continue with local news from The Courier. Meet Cheryl Johnson, the woman who directed Congress through historic chaos. The story comes from Bloomberg News. Dateline, Washington. House Clerk Cheryl Johnson became an unlikely folk hero in Washington last week, running the lower chamber of Congress with a steady hand as Republicans struggled to elect a leader amid historic chaos. Deploying only her own custom gavel and gently chiding words, Johnson guided the House through multiple rounds of voting on live TV, pushing back when members of both parties got off-topic or stepped out of line. But her calm but stern demeanor earned high marks on Capitol Hill 
and social media, where a number of people, including a member of Congress, joked that lawmakers should just elect her speaker. Quote, Cheryl Johnston, the clerk of the House for Speaker, tweeted Democratic Representative Joe Kana of California on Thursday. Quote, she's been extraordinary without any rules passed and in having some sense of fairness and order, unquote. Two members even mistakenly addressed her as Madam Speaker instead of Madam Clerk in their remarks. A little-known position outside of the Capitol, the clerk is chosen by the members of Congress every two years, meaning Johnson's job may be at risk now. Leaders in both parties say it will ultimately be up to newly elected House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to decide whether to reappoint her. The job's typical duties are the mundane but essential work of the House, preparing and delivering messages to the Senate, handling communications with the White House, and certifying the passage of bills. But the clerk is occasionally thrust into the spotlight. Along with a House sergeant at arms, Johnson twice was charged with hand-delivering articles of impeachment against Donald Trump to the Senate. And the clerk is nominally in charge of the House when it convenes for the first time. Normally, it's measured in minutes, with the clerk using a special 13-inch lacquered maple gavel taken out of storage just for that day until she hands over the duties to the new speaker. But Johnson remained on the dais until early Saturday morning after McCarthy finally got his own party to rally behind him as speaker in the 15th round of balloting, the first time that the decision has gone to multiple rounds of ballots since 1923. When a bystander noted that Johnson was getting a lot of attention this week, her response was dry and self-effacing. Quote, I need that, she said. Then, seeing two security officers flanking her, she added, quote, They aren't here for me, unquote. Although she was named as clerk by former Speaker Nancy Pelosi in 2018, Johnson has a more bipartisan background than some of her predecessors. She had previously worked as an aide to committee chaired by former Speaker John Boehner, who recalled her through a spokesman as always nice, and on initiatives to boost D.C. museums, such as the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. Quote, she is living up to the reputation that led her to have this job in the first place, said Danny Weiss, an ex-chief of staff to Johnson's boss at the time, former Representative George Miller, a California Democrat, praising her high degree of integrity and lack of partisanship. A native of New Orleans, Johnson graduated from the University of Iowa and earned a law degree from Howard University. She's the second black American to serve as house clerk and one of only four women to hold the job since 1789. Quote, I worked with Cheryl for years and am thrilled to see her up on that podium, said Linda St. Thomas, chief spokesperson for the Smithsonian Institution, jokingly adding that she wasn't sure how thrilled Johnson is right now. Democratic Republican Julia Brownlee of California said that presiding over the House can be a trying duty, even in the best of times, but that Johnson has done a good job of going straight down the middle and keeping lawmakers in line. Quote, nobody understands really how tough it is until you're up there on the dais 
with the gavel in your hand, she said. Even Republicans, mired in an embarrassing intra-party fight, showed their appreciation. Quote, she's doing great. Pennsylvania Representative Brian Fitzpatrick, a moderate Republican, said this past week. Quote, she hasn't screwed anything up yet, unquote. On Thursday, Johnson began the proceedings by noting that she has the responsibility to preserve order and decorum in the chamber, and asked members to address all questions to her and not attack each other directly. Members of both parties stood to applaud a rare moment of bipartisan agreement in the chamber. Next story comes to us from the Associated Press. Two dead after 15-vehicle pileup on ICI-80 in Iowa on Sunday. Dateline, Iowa City. Two people are dead and several others are injured after a 15-vehicle pileup in icy conditions on Interstate 80 near Iowa City on Sunday. The Iowa State Patrol said the crash happened after several drivers lost control on the icy highway and collided around 5.45 a.m. Nine of the vehicles involved in the crash were semi-trailer trucks. Westbound lanes of Interstate 80 were closed for more than eight hours after the crash. Two of the three lanes reopened by 2 p.m. This crash demonstrates the importance of all drivers paying attention every single minute to road conditions and potential hazards ahead, Iowa State Trooper Bob Conrad said in a statement. Quote, two families now have to adapt and accept a loved one never returning home. These types of crashes can be avoided, unquote. Now let's read the Metro Briefs column. Ernst to hold town hall meeting. Dateline Independence. U.S. Senator Joni Ernst will host a 12.30 p.m. town hall meeting Wednesday at the Independence Public Library at 805 East 1st Street. The Iowa Republican wants to hear from Buchanan County constituents about the issues most important to them. This town hall meeting is open to the public. Local groups seek volunteers. Cedar Falls, the volunteer center of the Cedar Valley, has announced the following needs of the local organizations. The Cedar Falls Historical Society is looking for hosts at its Victorian House Museum. People in the volunteer position answer questions, welcome visitors, and making sure the building runs smoothly. Friends of Hartman Reserve is looking for board members People in these volunteers' positions give input and help at Hartman Reserve. Habitat Humanity is recruiting people to help with its winter challenge. The organization is taking on the job of building 15 homes in the area and is hoping to get as many as 100 teams working. Together for Youth offers education and support for adolescent parents, but organizers need help watching the children while their parents learn. Contact the Volunteer Center of Cedar Valley at area code 319-883-3015 or information at vccv.org or go online to vccv.org for a complete listing of volunteer opportunities in the Cedar Valley. East High to Honor Athletes Waterloo The East High School Athletic Hall of Fame Class of 2022-23 inductees will be honored Saturday from noon to 1.30 p.m. in the upper gym 
before the start of the girls' varsity basketball game. An additional short recognition will take place before the start of the boys' varsity basketball game. Inductees during the 2022-23 Athletic Hall of Fame ceremony will include the 1974 State Championship Boys Basketball Team, the 2003 State Championship Boys Basketball Team, Marcus Magnum from the class of 1988, and L. Sarah Greer from the class of 2007. East High will be taking nominations for the 2023-24 Athletic Hall of Fame beginning on February 1st. Community members are invited to submit nominees for consideration. A nomination form is available in the school's athletic office or online at the school's website. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Monday, January 9th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. <laughs>